Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit hevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Relief from Grief podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ilanishmas Fega Basia Bas Peretz, and we do have sponsorship opportunities. You could email me at mribiat.org or go to the website, org. Today, we have Rabbi Nachman Seltzer. Rabbi Seltzer, thank you so, so much for coming on. My pleasure. I, I forgot to ask you how I should introduce you, but I feel like you don't need any introduction, right? <laughs> wow, that's a compliment. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows you. Everyone has at least some of your books. I can't imagine being from and having your books in the house, right? <laughs> they say, as a joke, people say, you're not famous today if I haven't written a book about you. I, you know, I was, re- I was thinking the other day, I was like, well, really, why are people okay with having books written about them while they're still alive? I look at it like a grandmother who has a lot of money and she gives to her grandchildren and her children while she's alive. I don't get that. <laughs> Look, imagine a grandmother has $5 million and she was, plans on giving out most of it to her children and grandchildren. So she could wait until she dies to give it to them. Or she could give it to them when she's alive and, and leave her enough money for herself. But she could see the pleasure on their faces and the joy on their eyes when they see their mother gave them $4 million. I think that's a Milo. So here, when a person's alive and I'm interviewing them, so they're sharing their wealth while they're alive. So I can achieve a much greater, much more personal and a much better book when I hear the stories and the information from the person themselves. Right. And they themselves can see the joy in everyone's eyes when those people, when their readers and the people suddenly are exposed to the four million dollars that they would have only learned about after the person passed away. So it's a win win from every side. It's a much better book. Plus, this person gets Nachas, or in the case of Ellie Beer or Rabbi Grossman, can use the book to fundraise and can raise a lot more money for their organization. Rabbi Wallace, for example, these are all. It's not just to write a book. It's also, it's it's so many different things happening every time you write a book. So many things are achieved. So many wonderful things happen. So many things lead from that to, to other things. So I, I think it's so much more effective to write it when a person's alive than to wait after they pass away. Okay. I guess I hear that. I, I can't imagine. I guess when you say the fundraising, I'm like, okay, then there's like real to wellness and it could be accomplished. But if it's not a fundraising thing, then it's so uncomfortable that suddenly like everyone knows your life. It's usually a lot of it has to do with fundraising. A lot, a, a lot of it has to do with the short for Ellie Beer, who's a very humble person, and Rabbi Grossman is so well known. He, he doesn't need more PR. It's again today, Rabbi Nachum Donner, who's his right hand man in America, told me he said today when I come to someone for fundraising, so either they read the book about Rabbi Grossman, or if they didn't, I give them a copy. So I'll come back to you in a few weeks. He said my job is so much easier than it used to be because. I just tell them, read the book. And okay, that's it. I don't have to say anything anymore. Wow. Okay. So since Kevin Levinishna doesn't deal with live people, but with dead people, <laughs> I guess let's talk a little bit about, actually, we start with Dara Shimshan and let's talk a little bit about how it shows that there's always a connection between 
people that are not allowed in their neshamas and people that you're the boss whatever you want to start with (laughs) okay let's start with that (laughs) okay so what do you what's your question my question is is that people when loved ones die they struggle a lot with what's going on for them now and a lot of times people will say things like oh they're in a better place and they're happier and maybe for some people you know they find the comforting and other people are left with yeah how do i know or just cuz people say that doesn't really mean that it's really true and i think a little bit this book that i guess the story behind the book i should say really right shows how like the neshamas are really connected into this world and there really is a connection between our loved ones and us so yeah. That's not a question, but do you have anything to respond to that? <laughs> okay, so basically, it all began in 2007. I was standing outside the Gross Shul in Ramat Bichemish Aleph, where I live. And after davening, an English fellow, an English chap named Nigel Kravitz came over to me, right? Only English people can pull off a name like Nigel. <laughs> Nigel, I love saying that name. Nigel, how are you, old boy? Nigel. <laughs> old top. Anyway, so Nigel guy is a young guy, like he's my age. He's not like, you know, this 85-year-old English guy, but he's he's a lawyer. He's English. He lives in Rapid Challenge. So Nigel Kravitz tells me a story about his father-in-law lives in Manchester, and uh, he was sick, and uh, he didn't know what to do, and he wasn't sure. It didn't look good. And then he one day he was in the local farm store, and the owner of the store said, listen, here's a safer written by a tzaddik a few hundred years ago from Italy, not well known, but he writes in the Akdama, really beautiful promises that people will learn the Sefer. I think you should learn the Sefer. You have nothing to lose. Let's see what happens. So Nigel's father-in-law takes the Sefer home. He learns the Sefer. And Baruch Hashem, there's a Yeshua. He has a Yeshua. Everything worked out for him. So I wrote this story in Amodiyah, and everyone around the world is like, how do we get the Sefer? So I'm getting phone calls and emails from everyone. How do I get the safer? So I said, it's out of print. And then it was so old, the safer that I had, that the phone number in the flap was six digits. That's how old it was. A six-digit number from Williamsburg. Oh, wow. That's how old it was. So I gave them the number, what I knew. And okay, a few years later... A, a rabbi from Williamsburg, his name is Rabbi Pashkiz, reached out to me. I happened to be in America at that time. I was meeting my then editor from Amadia, and he reaches out to me. He says, listen, can I meet you in Bar Park? So I met him in Bar Park at the good of 18th Avenue. And he tells me that because of this story, him and his partner, Rabbi Saul Zilberberg, Meritus Saul, they're really, they have an organization for couples who can't have children, and they give chizuk, and they got into the Zereshim, and it's a big thing. And then they reprinted the Safer, and now it's all over, and it's a, it's become a very big thing with Shurim, and there's a lot of stories of people who are learning the Safer and seeing Yeshua's when I write a follow-up article about it. I said yes, and I wrote a follow-up article, and that led to many more stories, and many more people learning the Safer, and many more Shurim starting. And then they asked me to write another follow-up article, and eventually they came to me and said, could you write um, a Safer in English? Can you take pieces, because it's a complicated Safer to learn, could you take pieces from the Sefer? We'll give you the pieces. I mean, Saul brings a buck in the Sefer. I'll choose the pieces for you and every pastor that are, you know, what people will like. Shovel the nefesh. And I said, okay. So, so I mean, in the beginning, I didn't say okay right away. Because I thought, I looked at it as a huge task, a mon- monumental task. If you do every pasha, three or four pieces, and there's the whole Torah to do, 
I was daunted by the task, but eventually they kept, they didn't give up. They kept them plugging away. And eventually I said, okay. And I ended up doing even more than I needed. So then when it was so successful, the first one was so successful. And we were very nervous. I have to tell you, our school was very nervous. Because we had some, it's a Chumash Sefer. And Chumash Farm don't, don't really sell because there's so many of them. Everybody writes a Chumash Sefer. So what I did was, because we were nervous, I said, you know what? I'm going to do something. I'm going to put stories into the, the Sefer also. And that way, even people come with the stories, then they'll see how great the Torah is. So that's what we did. We did it was like a three-pronged kind of attack. It was the stories, the Segula, and the, and the Torah. It's the Segula. If you learn the Sefer, you know, great things will happen for you and your families. And really, there's so many stories of people who learned the Sefer and saw Yeshua's. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I just want to jump in over here and say that Hebrilum the Mishnah has another organization, like a sister organization called Better Than a Skula. And Better Than a Skula does a lot of learning for people that need Yeshua's. We have a lot of single girls coming to us. People come for... Uh, you know, as a chus, you know, for us to do the learning for them, for as a chus for a child or parnasa or whatever it is, and the Zerushimshin campaign is very popular. We do have learning the Elaine Shmas, the, the Zerushimshin at Ziyar Zeit, and um, it's pretty popular. A lot of people come, so I just wanted to bring that awareness. It's mind-boggling, actually. Like people who are not people that you would expect to tell stories, like like Rosh Yeshivas from Lakewood, Litvisha Rosh Yeshivas, who are not into. These kind of heebie-jeebie things in Kabbalah, they're not into it. It's not their thing. But, but they were in touch with me to tell me stories that they give shiurim and they learn it. And let's say they had tell me the couldn't have children, like really serious issues. And they had children and like really amazing stories. So that was the first volume. I wrote the story. I put in stories on my own. I put in stories of people who saw Yeshua's based on the Zerashim and the Torah and the Segula and it became a phenomenal bestseller. And it was just such a big thing. So we did another one. We did another one. Then I did one on the Eishas Chayl. He has a picture of Chayl. And actually, the next book after the one I'm writing now is going to be Zerah Shimshin on Tehillim Be'ez Hashem. That's great. But what's great about the Zerah Shimshin, like it's going, going back to your original introduction, your lead-in, is that it all started because the Zerah Shimshin, Shimshin Chaim Nachmani, he had one son who passed away when he was alive. He was alive, and his son was not alive. And he had one son. So he wrote a statement called Zerah Shimshin, and he wrote another statement called Tolda Shimshin. And he said, please, I don't have children. Please learn my Torah. And I'm, I promise you, if you do that, I'm going to have gratitude to you in Shemayim. And he does. And he actually has a lot of gratitude. And the people see tremendous Yeshua's. So I think it's really very clear that there's a, a, a very clear connection between what happens here and what happens in Shemayim. I don't think there's any shail about that. What was he doing for all those hundreds of years until someone found the Sefer? <laughs> so the Sefer was around here and there. There was a few copies in a basement or an attic, but it was not something. There's a mazel to everything. And it was the time. It was a mazel. It was mamish and mazel. Like, who would have dreamed that this revolution would happen in Klai Yisrael? And suddenly a Sefer that no one knew about would become so big. And so many people would learn it and so many shiurim. Who would have dreamed of such a thing? It's amazing. It really is incredible. So I it's, guess the takeaway really is there is a connection. And it doesn't have to be like if someone lost a close relative. They could assume that that relative is really 
being a maylitz for them, even if they don't always see it. Because uh, hopefully, if the if the relative likes them, I'm saying. What if they didn't like them in this world? Do they like them in the next world? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'll tell you. If, if the relative didn't like you, of course, if you like them, if you like them, or even if you didn't, and you want to help them, you could help them. That I could tell you for sure. You could help them. I could tell you a story. It was a, there was a person in, and this person when she was little, her father used to go around the table every morning. He would come and tell them about the yard side. There was a yard side of a tzaddik, and you know, everyone, what are you going to do for the tzaddik's neshama? Yeah, and every morning he would do this. And each kid would say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to... And it's a famous I mean, story. I wrote the story in Abu Dhabi many years ago. Basically, what are you going to do? I'm going to learn a Mishnah. What are you going to do? I'm going to have a good. What are you going to do? I'm not going to hit my sister. Whatever. Each kid would do something that the Tzaddik's neshama. So this person, this girl, her father passed away at a relatively young age. And then she's like, you know what? One day she had like an epiphany. She's like... Just like we used to do this for other tzaddikim, I could do it for my father. So she would start doing like little gifts for her father. She would go around the house. I'm cleaning the house that my family should be able to serve Hashem in a clean house. And I'm doing it as a close to my father's neshama. I'm making lunch so that the kids should have cut to I'm doing this as a close to my father's neshama. And she would do this all the time, little gifts for her father. Then she said that like Erev Simchas Torah, her phone rings at six in the morning and her sister's on the phone. She's all hysterical. So she's like, what's wrong? What happened? What? So she said, I had a dream. And in the dream, Tati came to me and he was face was shining. He was wearing like white clothing. He's shown. And he says to me, how come you're not going to come to say Yizker and Shul, the Simchas Torah for me? So I said to him, because I'm in ninth month and I can barely walk. So he said, but if you only knew that the Nishamas in Shemayim wait a whole year for their children to come say Yizka for them. You wouldn't say this. You would come anyway. So she said, if it's that important, you all come. And then he says to me, do you know that your sister gives me little gifts? And then he disappeared. So it was four in the morning and I wanted to call you right away, but I couldn't call you at four in the morning. I waited till six. But what gifts do you give Hati? So at the beginning, she didn't really know what she was talking about. But then she thought about it. She realized these are little gifts that she's giving her father. And because she's giving her father these little gifts in Shemai, and they're actually helping him go from level to level. So I really believe this is very clear. So if you have a relative you want to help, if a relative you think needs help, but there is what to do for the person. And it, it really, it boils down to very small work on your part. You just could like learn a little Mishnah. When after Rabbi Moshe Shane passed away, Rucham Shane went to Rabbi Scheinberg and she said to him, you remember that my husband, Ramosha, you came to him when you were traveling and you asked him to learn because you can't learn as much when you travel. You asked him to lose some learning for you and he agreed and you owe him. So I'm asking you to now to, to pay him back. And Rosham wow. turned white. He turned white. He, and he thought about it a lot. He said, I'll give him like 20 seconds every day, whatever. That I'll, I'll give like a minute, something like that. Really? But yeah. Yeah. Like a minute he was willing to give. But the point is that you can actually give for relatives who you liked. You can give them gifts. And you can give to people that you didn't, even if you didn't like them, but you want to help them in Shemayim. If you feel they need help, you could help them. And it doesn't take a lot of effort. And you can really literally connect to these people. And I, this is a true story. It's not like I made this up. This is actually true. And in this story, she wasn't even really doing anything extra. She was just saying that it should. Whatever she was doing, look, whatever we do in life, it could be a mitzvah, it could be nothing. 
If you have Kavana before you write a book, I'm writing a book that it should inspire Kleistral. I try to say that everything I do, I'm, I'm saying it, Hashem, whatever I'm going to write, it should, my Kavana is that it should inspire Kleistral. So even if I don't say it before I start, but it's going into that category. If whatever I'm doing should be together, I'm doing it because I want to inspire Kleistral. So then it's a mitzvah. If you eat food with the Kavana that you want to have Kayach to serve Hashem, then it's a mitzvah. If you eat food because you like, you like steak, so then you like steak and you had a steak. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <clears throat> I think that it's such a good point because, you know, there's so many people today that, you know, they want to do something like Anishmas and they write to Fetora and they build yeshivas and they do all types of huge like things. And most people can't really do that. It's almost discouraging. Like, forget it. There's nothing I could do. But this is something that doesn't cost anything and it doesn't even take up time, really. And yet it really could be such a huge thing. Yeah. You know, if a, if a person goes to the Shetel Macher and says, cut off an inch of here because I want it to be more tzniyas and I'm doing this for you, Bobby. <laughs> I'm just saying, whatever you do, if you channel it in the right direction because you want to help your grandparents or relatives who, let's say, passed away without children, there's what to do. It's a true thing. Right, right. Let me ask you another question. When you wrote the books, like what's it called in in their inside homes, their homes, inside their homes, those three books. It's three books. It's a trilogy. It's inside their homes at his at his Rebbe's side and encounters with greatness. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that they go together. Oh, uh, they don't dafka go together, but they're all about the same type of subject. Right. So that was books that you wrote about people that were not alive anymore, right? People that were alive. That weren't alive, right? Some were. What do you say? Some were? Yeah. Some of the Gedalim were alive. Some were not. Oh, really? It was a mixture, for sure. So for those that weren't alive, you like interviewed their family members also and everything? So the first book, It's Either Homes, was my friend Rabbi Yamin Greengrass. So today is a Paisik and he has the best in the Ramat Pichemish. He's a Rosh Kailo. Then he was younger. He was in Taradas with me. We were kids in Brooklyn together. So today he's already, he's happy to say his name. But then it was all his personal interactions with Gedalim. I didn't interview the Gedalim. He spent countless hours cultivating relationships with Gedalim. So it was his personal encounters with Gedalim. The next book was Rabbi Yeshua Lif's personal encounters with Gedalim. And the third book was Rabbi Travis from Daniel Travis's interactions with Gedalim. Many of them were alive, are alive. Greengrass's book was with Chaim and like hidden tzaddikim of Yerushalayim. Rabbi Lif's book was... Gedolim from the past, like of Moshe and of, uh, of Ruderman, from the, the Gener Yisrael Gedolim, of David Kronglas and Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, or Nachum Partsovitz. It was like Rav Shlomo Orbach, Rav Yosher, great, like Mamish, the great, famous Gedolim. And then Rabbi Travis was like Paiskim and Bali Musser, like Rav Volber, Brevda. It was, it was three different types. But some of them were, a lot of the people were alive. It was a mix. So I'll tell you what I'm asking. I was talking to a Rav recently, and I was talking to him about feeling the pain. I was actually talking about child loss. And I was asking him about, was trying to, to find the place from the Torah that talks about child loss, but but more than just like by Yidom Aaron. Like I wanted to find the place and... I couldn't find it. It must be there somewhere, but I don't know. Like where it talks about... What are you talking about? There's a clear place. Isha Shunamis, Alisha Navi, 
She loses her son. Raishi, Raishi, he says. He goes to lie down. She loses her son. says This is the kid you sent me. And Elisha brought him back to life. Remember this, right? That was a, an example. And Yechevet almost lost Moshe Rabbeinu in the Nile. And, and she thought she was for, for sure losing him. That was another example of someone losing a child. In Mitzrayim, many parents lost their children when they threw them into the Nile. And that was a terrible sorrow for Klai Yisrael. There are many examples in the Tanakh. But but then we also have, you know, there's Shiva and there's Shloshim. And for our parents, that's it. There's not even a full year to mourn from the Torah perspective. But the Torah doesn't say don't feel. So I was trying to, I kept on asking him, what does the Torah say on feeling it for as long as you need to feel it and don't judge yourself for it. And it's okay to be sad, even if it's a year or five years later, there's going to be triggers. Things are going to come up. And he was saying that it's true. The Torah lets us feel. The Torah lets us be human. There's very few people that really could live exactly like that without the feelings. And then he gave an example. I forgot which Godel he said that cried straight through the whole Shiva for his son. And the second Shiva was over, he got up and he went back to his regular life and he didn't talk about it and he didn't cry anymore. And people asked him, like, how could you do that? He said, the Torah says we have seven days to cry. So I cried for seven, well, it's not really seven days if you think about it, but but we have Shiva for seven days. And once that's over, now the Torah says I should go back to my regular life. And I'm like wondering if like anything like that came your way when you were One doing second. I'm thinking... I'm trying to remember where where I had I have a story. I'm trying to remember where though, in which book that that it's actually this very much this the kuda. I have to see if I can find it though. <laughs> yeah, so Gusman here, it's in at his Rebbe's side. It's okay. So I'm going to read to you. In 2005, Professor Yisrael Robert Alman won the Nobel Prize in the field of economics for his work on game theory, his greatest contribution being in the realm of what he called repeated games. Many years earlier, his son Shlomo learned in the Mary Yeshiva for a time. Rahman al-Islam was killed in the 1982 Lebanon War while serving as a tank gunner in the armored corps. Professor Alman lived in the Rechavia neighborhood of Yushalayim and David in Rav Guzman's Yeshiva. When Shlomo Alman was killed, Rav Guzman brought his entire Yeshiva to the cemetery to take part in the funeral of that brilliant young man. Surveying the rows of freshly dug graves for all the soldiers who had been killed in the war, Rosh Yeshiva became extremely agitated. They had left the cemetery and were driving back to the Yeshiva. He remarked to one of the other passengers, they're all holy, every single one of them. Then he asked the driver to take them to the Alman home. Of Grisman entered the room where the grieving family sat and asked to take a seat beside Professor Alman. Rabbi, I appreciate your coming here, the professor told Rav Grisman, but now it's time for you to return to the Yeshiva. Of Guzman didn't obey the professor. Instead, he began to speak, first in Yiddish and then in Hebrew. I had a son named Meir, he told the people in the room. He was a beautiful child. He was taken from me by the Nazis and executed right before my eyes. I managed to escape. I later bartered Meir's shoes for food, food that I myself was unable to eat, food I used to help others survive. My Meir was a Kaddish, along with the rest of the six million condition. I want to tell you what's happening right now in the world of truth, of Guzman said to the professor. My Meir is welcoming your son Shlomo into the minion. And telling him, I died because I am a Jew, but it wasn't able to save anyone else. You, on the other hand, died while fighting for the Jewish people in the land of Eretz Yisrael. My son, Meir, is a Kaddish, but your son is a Shliach Tzibur, cousin in the Minyan in Ganeidin. Then Rav Guzman added something that resounded across the world. I was never given the opportunity to sit Shiva for my Meir, he said. Please allow me to sit here with you for a while longer. 
When Rav Gusman rose to leave, Professor Alman had this thing to say. I never thought I could be comforted, but Rabbi, you have comforted me. That was Rav Gusman. Wow. So I think that, that basically Rav Gusman, that happened many, many years after his son passed away. Rav Gusman still felt it sharply. I don't think there's a statute of limitations on a person's grief. Right. I don't think anyone should ever be told, like, why are you still sad? Right. <laughs> for sure. For sure not. I, I so badly wanted to, like, find that from, like, someone in the Torah. Like, David HaMelech lost a child. But, th- th- like, it says he got up and he went to comfort his wife. Like, it didn't talk about that he was so sad and he still cried, you know, three months later. I don't know, different things like that. But what I was are you like, talking about? David HaMelech's a great example. Oh, yeah, Shalom, Shalom, Bini, Bini, Shalom, Bini. How I would have wanted to die for you, it says. I know, but what happened after? He said Bini like eight times or something. And then what happened? He was sad. And then he was sad. What do you mean? He was sad. Well, it's the clearest thing. He said, Bini, Bini, Shalom, Bini, my son, my son, Shalom, my son. He's crying about his son. He's so sad. He wasn't over it. But he said that right after he died. What did he say yes. six months later? He said, I miss my son. Okay. <laughs> you think he was over it? He loved his son. I don't think he got over it. It doesn't say he got over losing his son. David Amalek was someone who felt things very strongly. His friendship with Yonason was a very strong friendship. His relationship with his wives was very strong. His relationship with his sons were very strong. I think it's clear that his grieving and mourning was very intense and tremendously intense, of intense variety. That's one of the most powerful lines about mourning in the Torah. Oh, you have shalom, b'ni, b'ni, b'ni. I think it's beyond powerful. So what's my problem? (laughs) You hear what I'm saying? I do. I do hear what you're saying, but... I want the Torah to say that he said that a year later. I want the Torah to say that he cried when he made Kiddush for the next, you know, three years. Like, that's that's what I want to find in the Torah. And I guess we don't find that because that's not what the Torah is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One, one second. Hold on a second. How about this? Rivka Yemenu comes from the house of Lavan to Yitzchak's house, right? And then it says, and she comes into the tent, Vayinachim Yitzchak Achrayimot. Yitzchak was comforted after losing his mother, but he wasn't comforted. It wasn't the day later. How, how long later was it? It was, I don't know. It was after. And the point is that Yitzchak was mourning. His mother was gone and he was not okay with, he was upset. He was sad. And the tent was not the same. The challah was not the same. The shechina wasn't there. His mother was gone. Everything was different. And only when his wife, his wife showed up and then everything came back, is Yitzchak whole again? And he's he's comforted. And until then, he wasn't comforted. Okay, I like that. (laughs) That's that's straight out of the Bible, ma'am. It's not even like Navi. It's Chomish. Only now he's uh, comforted. Right. That's very interesting. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm sure I can think of more examples. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's plenty more examples in the Torah where we talk about relationships and mourning 
and uh, the people not getting over sadness. I'm sure. Look, at the end of the day, Judaism is a religion that actually loves to tell stories about people the way they were, without sugarcoating them. In the weakness of people, we don't have a problem talking about people not being perfect. We talk about it. So, therefore, part of that is sadness. Part of that is a sad. Shalom Melech was not, it doesn't seem like Shalom Melech was, I don't know, I don't like speaking about Shalom Melech, but it says Shalom Melech was not, he wasn't happy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He was so, a happy person. He had a lot of challenges emotionally. Right. right? Mm-hmm. He was an internally based person. He was not an extrovert. He was an introvert. And he suffered with a lot of issues. And I'm saying the Torah is not sugarcoating it. So part of these things is that there's issues with death from the beginning of time. Kayan and Hevel, right away it starts. Death is an issue. Death is a element. And, Does and he I don't talk think... at all? Do you know about Adam and Chava when they lost Hevel? Kind of Hevel, yeah, right? They lost Hevel. It doesn't talk about I'm not familiar with anything talking about their reaction to losing Hevel. We know that Kayan, again, it's hard to psychoanalyze people, you know, because it's not our job to psychoanalyze great people. Right. It's a fascinating story, the whole story of, of Cain and Hevel, because the Kaddish Baruch Hu said to Cain, you know, you messed up. You brought me a carbon that wasn't great. So, okay, you didn't do a good job. So, here, bring another carbon and get it right. You don't have, it's okay. I'm not upset at you. So then Cain goes, and not only does he not bring another carbon, he goes and he kills Hevel because Hevel got it right. And then he has to live with a mark of shame on his, on his head forever. So this is like another answer to you. It never goes away. Forever, Cain then lives with the repercussions of what he did. But that's not a pain thing. That's like a pretty bad thing. It was also a pain thing. What do you think? You never suffered for guilt for what he did to his brother? No, right. But I'm saying, right, okay. But that's living with the guilt, not living with the pain of not having his, I guess that also, who knows? (laughs) It's his his brother. You know, in fact, yeah, somebody, I'll tell you a story. There was once, I think the Chasm Seifer, at, at, at a Chasm, at a football, somebody came forward and said that the Chasm's puzzled to marry the Kalos. On the spot, the Chasm Seifer puzzled the Edis. So when they asked the Chasm Seifer how he did it, he said, be mevarer if the Chasm, if the person who came to try to ruin the Chasm was related to the Chasm. So it turned out he was. And they said to the Chassid Seifer, how do you know this? He said, because the person had three, four months or half a year or a year to come forward if they knew something and say that this isn't a good shidduch. But he waited till the chuppah to do it. That means he hates the Chassid and he or he hates the family and wants to really get them. Only family is capable of such hate. Really? Yeah. But the reason is because only family is capable of such love. You know, right. The line between love and hate is very thin. Between great right. love and great hate. Therefore, only someone who's capable of such great love is capable of such great hate. And therefore, I knew that he was family. And therefore, so you understand what I'm saying? It's that is the love. You know, the, the hate and the love are intertwined. I, like, I guess it, it's like when someone has a complicated relationship with their parent and their parent yeah. dies, and you would think, like, okay, they're done with that complicated relationship. But 
It's not. The grief is so strong. You, I know people have complicated relationships with their parents. I can tell you right now, it's never over. Right. I know people, <laughs> I see, they, they, they never get over it. You know, right. a complicated relationship is there forever. Okay, so I guess could we like end off with a story? I know that a few years ago when you came and you spoke for Chavon Lom the Mishnah, and I think you spoke a lot about about stories that show the connection. Well, I told uh, I did two things. I, I gave a shir about David Melech and and the whole story with Bacheva and how that happened, and you know because he was a person who completely took control of the Yitzharos. How is that possible? And it was really because he himself asked for the Nisayan. It was all the whole shir, and. I told over a bunch of stories about showing, illustrating the point of the connection that exists between this world and the next world. And one of the stories I told over that night at Lakewood was the story about the Ben David family in Beitar, I remember. So the story, I haven't said the story over in a while, that it hadn't happened long before. The story was that the Ben David family lived in Beitar. And Mrs. Ben David was sick. She got sick. She went around talking, giving chizik to people. And then she passed away. Hi. But yeah. So the neighbor, the story that I'm telling you happened to the neighbor. Right across the hall from Ben David. So she said that one of the children was talking to her and said to her, you know, my kid, my brother's becoming bar mitzvah. And it's so sad. My mother's not going to be there. So she said, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say that. She said, what do you mean? She says, look, let me tell you a story. I wouldn't say that she's not going to be there. So she says, what do you mean? She says, I'll tell you. She's telling this to one of the Ben David girls. She said, when your sister, your little sister, she was having a sitter party. So one of the kids asked me, they said to me, could you bake a cake for the sitter party? So I said, I want to make a cake for the sitter party. It's a big day in your sister's life. There's one little eensy weensy problem. That is the fact that I am a terrible baker. Okay, I myself can relate to this because I'm a pretty good cook, but I'm not a good baker. Okay. It's not good. Anytime I tried, the results weren't spectacular, to say the least. Okay. Maybe because, yeah, it's, it's not about your feeling. It's about, like, really following the recipe and the it's there's no room for like personal interpretation really i mean maybe there is but i don't know anyway so this lady wasn't a great baker either but on the other hand she still felt like i want to i want to to help so she says what should i do so she goes into our kitchen and she says like i felt like this presence in the kitchen with me that day guiding me to like take a particular cookbook and i found the recipe and I baked the cake. And she said, like, I can't bake to save my life. But for the first time ever, it actually worked. And I put in the amount of sugar and the amount of water and the amount of flour and, and baking soda. Everything I did right. And it came out of the oven beautiful. So I said to myself, wow, I'm so great. I can't believe this. I should maybe frost it. Let's push myself even further. So I looked up a recipe for frosting and I frosted the cake. And then I said, it's so beautiful. Maybe I should write a pusik on the cake. So I took out chocolate chips and I wrote a pasuk. Something like that. I wrote those words. And I put like flowers and squiggles. I really made a beautiful cake. And then I'm so proud of myself. And I go across the hall carrying this cake. And I bring it across the hall. I knock on the door. And Rabbi Ben David answers the door. And I, and I say, here, I, I baked this cake for your daughter's center party. 
So he looks at the cake and then he starts to cry. Now you can imagine someone goes across the hall to their neighbor and he's like a chas of a person and he baked him a cake for his kid's party. And what's his response? He starts to cry. Like you can imagine, like, put yourself in this person's shoes for a second. She's like, Rabbi Ben David, what happened? Why are you crying? So he says, wait here. And he goes into the house and he comes back with, a, with an album, a photo album. And he says, I want to show you something. He says, my wife used to make a cake for every child in this center party. That you, my wife would make a cake. And I want to show you a picture. He would take a picture. Look at the pictures of the cakes. He says, the exact same cake that you baked was what the cake she used to bake. The same cake, the same frosting, the same pasuk written in chocolate chips, the same squiggle, the same flowers. Wow. Every year for every kid, it was the same cake. And you, without knowing that, baked the exact same cake. That's why I'm crying. So, so this neighbor turns to this child and says, with a story like this, I can tell you, your mother's going to be at the bar mitzvah. Wow. That really so is. She, like, she oh. was there. She came. She was there for the student party. So be there for the bar mitzvah. So I think it's, it seems pretty clear that people are, there's a connection. There's a real connection between this world and the next world. That's why we invite, right before a simcho, there's a minute to go to the kvarim and invite and invite the relatives to come, the Zaydas and the Babas. The Ribna Tzarebbe, I just finished writing a book about the Ribna Tzarebbe. And the Ribna Tzarebbe, when, when he got married to his second wife, they were supposed to start the chuppah at a certain time, and it, and it just slept on and on and on and on and on. And eventually, at like 11.30, they had the chuppah. So afterwards, the Rebetzin asked her husband, well, you know, what took so long? So he said, you know, I was waiting for all the Zaydas and Babas and Shemayim to come, and it was taking a long time for them to come. And only when they came at 11 o'clock was I able to start the chuppah. So that's what I did. And I wrote Rabbit Zayongrice's book. I went to the basic forest in, in Queens, and I and I said to the Rabbit I said, Rabbit and the Rabbi Youngrice, you know, my name is Nachman Seltzer, and I'm going to write the book about you, and I hope I'm going to do my best to really present you the way you deserve to be presented. And you know what? It was I felt the last year after the Shemayim, that project. Yeah, really? Yeah, it, I, it's one of my favorite books. I have three favorite books. The Network, The Rebbitson, and 90 Seconds. These are my three favorites out of almost 45 books so far. And those are my three favorites. And The Rebbitson, I love that book. I, I, there's something very special about that book. But there's something about it. Like the neighbor said, the mother was there guiding her and eat along each step of the way so that she made the exact same cake that this kid should have the same cake that the mother made for all of the siblings when they had a cinnamon. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And I think now I remember that story <laughs> as you're saying it. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I guess everyone should find comfort in knowing that their loved ones are really still connected. And thank you so, so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much for having me. And each one of us in their way, using their kaiches and talents, should be mechazik Yisrael, and bring. We should all be yachad, help to bring everyone closer to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and do our job as Yidden. That's our job. You use our kaiches. What's you're doing? You're using your kaiches, your talents to to, to help Yisrael. That's exactly what a person's supposed to do in this world. I hope so. <laughs> People wonder if what they're doing in life is the right, is the thing they should be doing. I think the answer is that when you see Siyat the Shmaya in a, in a particular subject, topic, Mahalach that you're doing, 
It's usually an indication that that's what Hashem wants you to do. Because this is Siat and the Shemaya there. Hashem's helping you. He's smoothing the way in front of you. So that's, he's showing you by the fact that it's happening and you see it's happening and things, doors are opening all the time and what the road is developing constantly. So it's clear that Hashem is happy with what you're doing. I think that's a pretty good indication that Hashem is I, happy. I guess so. Like I emailed you like maybe like three hours ago and now we're doing this. It's- <laughs> you see that? I didn't know we would do this this morning, but here we are. So, <laughs> right. All right. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you so much. You have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Riviette. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishnah.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishnah.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be Mechazak others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast.